Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Attention collectors of vinyl. Have you ever gone into a record store and felt overwhelmed by all the unfamiliar options? Are you frustrated by the constantly increasing prices of classic rock staples? Do you avoid streaming music or long for the days when music was recommended to you by a friend instead of an algorithm? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then check out I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. Each week, hosts Sean, Jeremy, and Peter discuss an album and the artist's history. Previous episodes include selections by the Isley Brothers, the Carpenters, the Doobie Brothers, and Donna Summer, among others. Become a bargain bin pro and impress all your friends with cool music trivia. Listen to I'd Buy That for a dollar wherever you get your podcasts. Creative Control with Bish Khanna. Why, hello, and welcome once again to this show. You know, the other day I mentioned that uh, potentially my preparation for the show might be disrupted by a visit from my in-laws. That hasn't necessarily been the case, although if you strain and listen closely, you might hear my father-in-law working on the sandbox that we built for my son. Otherwise, things have been pretty good. Well, I gotta say, some people have canceled on the show, some interviews didn't happen. Sometimes these things happen. But that has no bearing on this this particular episode because I think it's a good one. Uh, amazing comedian Kumail Nanjiani is on the show to talk about his new record, Beta Male, and a whole bunch of other stuff too. So let's get to Kumail. This episode is brought to you by The Bookshelf, Guelph's downtown cultural hub for 40 years. It's a top-notch bookstore and well-curated rep cinema 
That's upstairs, and they're screening all of the great contemporary movies and none of the bad ones. Over the next week, you can watch The Great Gatsby, Unfinished Song, and Byzantium in the cinema. You've also got the E-Bar and Green Room upstairs, which has a full-service restaurant, a bar. They do a lot of concerts and exhibitions up there. It's a dance club on the weekends. It does it all, really. In September, the bookshelf is bringing Mary Swan to do a reading, and they're supporting the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, taking place September 13th to 15th, which features the Joel Plaskett Emergency, Michael Pollan, Sarah Elton, and over 50 more writers and artists. The bookshelf just supports the most awesome stuff, and they're located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, and you can learn more about them at bookshelf.ca. Kumail Nanjiani is a very funny person who hails from Karachi, Pakistan, but currently lives somewhere in the vicinity of Los Angeles, California. He has worked on numerous television shows as a writer and or actor, including Michael and Michael Have Issues, Portlandia, Veep, Franklin and Bash, and Burning Love. Along with Jonah Ray, he's due to co-host the upcoming Comedy Central show The Meltdown with Jonah and Kumail, which will have something to do with the regular showcase the duo host at the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. Nianjani is also the co-host of a popular video game podcast called The Indoor Kids. And on July 23rd, Comedy Central released his hilarious new stand-up special, Beta Mail, as a CD and DVD package. Uh, here now to discuss uh, the majority of things I just said is Kumail Nanjani. Uh, hi, Kumail. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, man. No, it's my pleasure. Uh, where are you and what are you doing? I am in L.A. in the Lake area, and when you called me, I was uh, doing some writing. Oh, you're writing. What, what, do you mind divulging what you were writing? I'm working on this movie that I've been working on for a little bit, and I'm doing the second draft right now, so I kind of do that. Um, you know, I like to, I'd like to pour more time into it, but I sort of try and find time between stuff to write this thing. Oh, okay. This is something you say you've been working on for quite some time. Yeah, I would say, well, by quite some time, I mean, it'll be, it's less than a year, but not much less than a year for a while, yeah. Okay, and it's a, it's some kind of comedic premise, I can only assume. Yeah, it's a comedy, um, <laughs> but like pretty grounded, it's not like one of those wacky, weird ones, you know, like it's pretty grounded, okay. uh, realistic movie. Okay, cool. Well, I, I don't, I don't expect you to tell us too much more about it, but I'm, that's exciting to hear. Well, I hope sometime you get to hear about it, you know? I mean, these things, you just sort of write it to write it, and if something happens with it, great, and if nothing does, at least, you know, you got to write it. Are you are you in a process where someone is like, hey, yeah, I want to, uh, someone's already interested in it, or are you just writing it to write it and writing it, are you writing it to write it and seeing what happens? Well, I'm sort of been working with um, Jed Apatow. It's nothing official, but, you know, we sort of go back and forth, and he gives me notes and stuff. He really likes the idea, and he wants me to write it, and then he'll sort of, I think, um, like I said, we're doing the second draft right now. So he's sort of been my mentor and guru through this. There's nothing official set up anywhere, but he's been the guy that I uh, am sending the uh, pages to. Okay, so it, it, it's a this is a perspective big deal. This could be a, a big thing. It could be, but, you know, it's hard to think about it like that because you get excited about stuff and then stuff doesn't come through, so I just try and focus on what I'm doing and then hopefully, you know, it turns into something and if it doesn't, then you move on to something else. Sure, sure. Uh, you were just in Montreal for the Just for Laughs Festival, right? 
I was. I could only be there for one day, so I got there in the morning, did my shows at night, and left the uh, next afternoon. Oh, wow. So how was your time in Canada? I love that festival. I always like going. And, you know, we started doing this Meltdown show, which you mentioned in the intro. We started doing it uh, at festivals around. We've done it in New York. We've done it in San Francisco. This is the first time we've done it outside the country. And it was really awesome because people knew the show. They didn't just come to see... You know, we had a really good lineup of comedians, but it was cool to see that people in other uh, cities are aware of the show as an entity. And what is the nature of the show exactly? Like, you guys are hosting this thing, right? And and, and pe- people come up. Is that basically how it works? Yeah, it's basically a stand-up show that we, Jonah and I host, um, and we have different comedians on, but the sort of hook is that we... We do our show here every Wednesday night in the back of a comic book store, but it's a really good performance space, but it is the back of a comic book store. So we wanted to do it for TV. Um, Red Hour, the production company that Ben Stiller owns, sort of approached us, and they said, we want to do this for TV, but we said, you know, we'll go pitch it around, but only if we get to shoot in this space, because a lot of shows are shot in, um, you know, they take them to set, or like these big warehouses that they change to look like a theater for us. You know, the, the big appeal of doing the show was the space itself and how organic and, and real it was. So we decided we'll pitch it, but only do it if they let us shoot it back there. And that's what Comedy Central did. So, yeah, we'll be we'll start next year and we'll shoot it in the back of a comic book store. OK, cool. And it's it's actually just it's a stand up show. There's not like a, some kind of conceptually driven aspect to it, per se. Not really. We do uh, tape uh, backstage stuff, and we did that in the pilot, and it turned out really, really well. I mean, in the pilot, we had an amazing lineup. We had Pete Holmes, Tom Lennon, Nick Kroll, Jim Gaffigan, Natasha Leggero, Gerard Carmichael. So, um, And then we just sort of uh, filmed them hanging out, and it turned out really, really well. Oh, okay. All right, so th- this thing has room to grow and develop, and it may surprise you even. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where... You don't know what it's going to be until, you know, you get in the editing room. You know what the feel of it should be and what it should look like, uh, but the actual specifics of it, you know, you sort of discover as you go. Right, right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your your own uh, act because uh, I've been listening to Beta Male quite a bit, and in, in your act you talk about how you were raised Muslim, but your upbringing in Pakistan was, I mean, seemingly heavily influenced by Western pop culture. How common was that among your friends? Uh, fairly common. I mean, we definitely had access to a lot of Hollywood movies. You know, everybody had VCRs. I'm talking about this, you know, middle class sort of uh, people in Karachi. Um, we had access to VCR and we had movies. And I, out of all of my friends, I was definitely the most into movies and the most into video games. But, you know, the big ones my friends would sort of uh, also see and stuff. Um, I remember like, the movie theaters we had would mostly play uh, Urdu movies, uh, Pakistani movies. But uh-huh. then towards the end, they started getting sort of bigger American movies later. Like the first one I can remember is Jurassic Park was the first sort of big American movie that we got. We used to get like oh, like Dolph Lundgren stuff and like Steven Seagal stuff, like B movies. But that was the first like a Hollywood movie that I remember seeing in the theater. Huh. I, I've only been to, I'm, my parents are Indian, I've only been to India once in 1989, and I remember feeling kind of homesick, and and then we developed this, or rather we discovered that there was this video store that had like bootlegs of all the movies that were in 
the theater when I left. So like I saw like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like <laughs> on video. Before. <laughs> I, I just thought that was kind of, and then they had all these movies like that, just sort of weird choices. I thought like, I think Michael Douglas's Black Rain was in there. Anyway, I just was like baffled by that. <laughs> is that is that the kind of access that you had? Like, or were they like, was it legitimate or was it sort of shady? It was was shady for most of my life, and at the end, I think it turned legitimate. But uh, it was still what we would do is I think what they would do is you know uh, movies that were still in theaters, you could see bootleg prints of with like a guy with a camcorder in his hand. That's how I saw the last Diesel Weapon movie was like a guy with a camcorder in his hand sitting. He was sitting way too close to the screen, so it was all like the tops of their heads were kind of like receding from you. There was a guy. I remember I saw Sixth Sense and the guy in front of me, you know, in front of the guy taping it, like, kept messing with his hair. So it, it feels like a really quiet MST3K, you know, like, where they're not chiming in. Uh, but, yeah, I saw a lot of movies like that, and it was a big thing. You'd go to the movie theater, I mean, you'd go to the rental store, and he'd be like, he'd be like all right, so this is pretty good, it's, this is one that isn't good. Um, and they would have Indian movie names on them or Pakistani movie names on them. And he had sort of this book that would say, all right, if it says this, then it's Lethal Weapon. If it says this, then it's, you know, uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs or whatever. Right, right. And the other big thing that I discovered at some point was that there were, like, Indian adaptations of American films. Like, do you remember the Richard Pryor movie Brewster's Millions? Yes. Right, he's a baseball player, uh, like a struggling minor league baseball player, and he comes into all this money. I discovered that there's an Indian version of it, but the guy's a cricket player. Uh, well, that seems like a good change. Nice <laughs> localization there. Uh, yeah, they did that a lot. There were a lot of movies. You know, I, I watched more Indian movies than Pakistani movies. Like Bollywood, their quality is much better, yeah. uh, at least for the most part. I don't want to piss anyone off. <laughs> But uh, so I grew up watching like, you know, I've seen almost every big Indian movie until about 97 and then it sort of dried up because I moved here. But yeah, a lot of them were like straight ripoffs. There was also a long time where every Indian movie had the same premise. It was some variation of parents get killed, kid grows up, takes revenge, or brothers are separated and they recognize each other by like half a locket or like a matching uh, birthmark. Um, there was, there were all of these like, oh, or somebody gets in the head, loses their memory. Thirty years later, they get hit in the head again, regain their memory. Um, cops were always the bad guys. I still have this weird distrust of police because um, every cop in every Indian Pakistani movie was a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, but they all could sing and dance quite wonderfully. Yeah, but, you know, they can dance, but they, it's not them singing. Like, when when they open their mouth, it's clearly, like, someone <laughs> of a completely different body type and age singing. Uh, but, yeah, you can't be a big star in Bollywood and not be able to dance. I mean, it's sort of, you know, like, you'd have to be, like, the guy who's as big as Tom Cruise over there is also, like, the best dancer. Yeah, and I don't know what where that comes from like i haven't done any you know research about it but i, I don't know why this it, they're basically they're musicals and i don't know why so many of the films are, are musically driven and, and like flat out like narrative concepts come through in the songs you know it's it's it, it is kind of interesting i don't do you do you have any insight on that why is that a thing 
Well, I know that part of it is, you know, we were pretty conservative societies. I think India is sort of changing a little bit now, but you couldn't really show sex or even imply sex that much. So a guy and a girl singing together usually implied that they had sex. So if it was a guy and a girl singing, <laughs> and then the next scene she's pregnant. Uh, so that happens a lot. They dance around trees. That means also that they've had sex. Uh, so I think it... It was a way of sort of getting across some of these things. It's also, you know, I mean, for the most part, India, Pakistan are very poor countries, so the singing is like a, you know, these movies are like escapism. Like people go to the theater and they're there for like four hours and there's like a half hour intermission and you eat like full food. Mm -hmm. Like you got to eat full meals and you smoke in there and you just sort of go and, you know, like sort of forget about your troubles. Yeah, it's true, and I mean, I don't know about you. Well, you haven't uh, in your special in beta mail. You say you haven't been back to Pakistan, Pakistan since, right? Uh, I moved here in '97, and I went like in '98 once, but I haven't been back since then. Oh, you haven't been back since '98. So, is your family, everyone, still there? Like your parents? Uh, my parents are now in New Jersey. They moved a few years ago, but you know my. My grandparents and my aunts and uncles and cousins, everyone's still back there. So how did your parents find 1990? Sorry, they moved, they only moved to New, and they moved to New Jersey. Why New Jersey? I just can't imagine the adaptation that must have happened there. How, how are they doing in New Jersey, your parents? Well, they didn't want it to be too much of a quick step up from Karachi. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize to New Jersey. Um, you know what? It's interesting because you don't, I never gave my parents enough credit for sort of adapting when they were coming here. I thought it was going to be pretty, uh, you know, bad because they were in their fifties and they've lived in Pakistan their whole lives. Well, my mom, I guess was in India when she was a little kid, but you know, that's, that's home to them and they have their friends and family and we, you know, we were very close, big families. We would see the same, uh, you know, they hung out with their brothers and sisters all the time. Um, but they love it there. They've adapted really well, and now they have, you know, in the beginning, like, then they were a little weird about having Hindu friends and Christian friends, but now they do, and they hang out with everyone. And my parents go out, like, at, on New Year's Eve, my parents were out later than I was. Mm -hmm. So they're really sort of having, like, a second awesome life right now. I think they're having a really good time. You know, m me and my brother are away. They could do whatever they want, and... They have a really good group of friends there. You know, part of your moving away when you did, like you moved away just as the internet was kind of coming into vogue, I'd say. Like it was like early days, probably. A couple years into what we kind of now know as the internet. And and you left. I mean, what compelled you to want to leave, uh, first of all? And maybe secondly, did were you kind of rejecting anything from your past? Because I have a lot of, I, I have had in, historically some cultural baggage like i tried to do. i i mostly rejected my culture until i got to university and realized you know actually some some aspects of my culture are pretty cool yeah um well i moved because it was always the plan like the plan was always that i would come to america for college and my brother would come to america for college because pakistan is you know i mean we had to deal with sort of we were in sort of a nicer part of town but it's very corrupt. It's very poor. Crime was a major, major issue. I mean, it's you know things are really bad over there, and they have been bad forever. And it seems like they're getting worse. So the plan was always to sort of get us out. So that's why I left. Um, I sort of have an interesting uh, relationship with Pakistan. It's home. 
you know, I love the food and I love the people, but there's a lot of things about it that, um, you know, I still haven't been able to really come to terms with. It is a very close-minded society. It's very misogynistic for the most part, very homophobic. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, and very, very, very religious. Um, you, if you aren't sort of a religious Muslim, then you can't really be a part of Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan, I believe, was the first country formed specifically for the purpose of a religion, mm-hmm. um, for the purpose of one religion. Pakistan means land of the pure and the pure are, you know, Muslims. Right. So uh, I sort of have a strange um, uh, relationship with it. It's also, you know, the identity thing is weird for me because I don't consider myself American, but I also don't consider myself Pakistani. So it's sort of um, weird to sort of not have like a big group of people that I can identify myself with. You know, I identify myself, I guess, as a comedian, and that's really the only community that I can sort of call my own. <laughs> well, you seem to be doing well within it. Can you, and I don't want to, I know you probably get, are you tired of this? Do you get a lot of questions about your background? Is it, does it get tiresome? No, no. I mean, you know, I'm I'm happy to talk about anything. I don't think um I don't think I'm really tired of it or anything. It's just it's just weird to talk about it because as I said, I don't really have a handle on uh, my relationship with it. No, that's fair, but I, I guess I'm curious, like you, you talk about your you're self aware about Pakistan and, and what its sort of limitations are and, and the things that you find disagreeable about it. But what would have compelled you to go against the grain, so to speak? Do you have? Can you think about external influences on your life that would have been like, actually, this whole thing, this whole thing's kind of bullshit. I don't feel this way. Like, what what could have instilled within you a desire to think differently? I suppose when you're kind of immersed in that in that kind of culture. Uh, nothing did when I was there. I mean, I really, really didn't uh, see anything wrong with it because, you know, I was a kid. This is just how things are. You know, if the cops stop you, they can take you to jail and, um, unless you give them money. You know, there's a rocket launcher attack four blocks from my house. You know, I saw a guy get shot once. Like, you know, that's just what reality was, and that's just how it is. And you just are careful, but that's just what the world is. Hmm. Um, and, you know... Jews are bad and homosexuality is wrong and all of this stuff was not something I really uh, questioned or even thought about beyond just accepting it. And then what happens, I think, is when I move to a different country and you see that things can be a different way. And it's not that you take the different way as being the right way, but just the fact that there are other sort of approaches possible makes you question, you know, the way... Thing you the way you thought things were. Um, it's not that you find a different dogma that makes more sense to you. It's more that you realize that other people have different ways of living and thinking, and so you sort of have to figure your own morality out, you know. And and you realize that you can do that. But you didn't uh, you didn't arrive in in the United States of America as some kind of racist, sexist, homophobic zealot, did you? I mean, you. You, 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 there's obviously you didn't have, undergo some radical change when you got here, did you? Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say I was a zealot, and I wasn't. I mean, I definitely remember being homophobic, and part of that was what we were told, but part of that was the fact that I didn't really know anyone who was, you know, out. Um, when I look back on my friends now in college, I'm like, oh, in uh, high school, I'm like, okay, that guy was probably probably has come out by now, hopefully. Oh, I see. Um, so, so I don't, 
you know, I would say I was fairly close-minded. I didn't really have, like, negative feelings against people of other religions or anything like that, but I definitely felt that they were wrong, <laughs> and I definitely was probably homophobic and probably a little misogynistic, and, um, yeah, I mean, I was a very agreeable, normal guy, but I sort of had vestiges of this stuff in me. Right, and I mean, I think like all of us, you get to, particularly, like, if you're educated and you go to university or college, you know, sometimes your thinking on these things just evolves. Yeah, you sort of get to figure out who you are as a person. And I think it's not so different in that for most people that's in college is when you sort of think about who who you are and what you want to be and how you define yourself uh, by, you know, defying your family or moving away from them at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some there are there are comedians who can really mine the kind of cultural or, or racial differences between us for jokes because I mean I think on stage like in a room in particular the jokes work because it's almost a reaction to this otherwise unspoken tension in a room I I think and when you talk about watching porn or or, or TV in general in, in Pakistan it almost has the opposite effect because you're you're bypassing the difference for something relatable like you're mentioning that you're you were in this other place but instantly you're talking about something that kind of grounds you in, in a in an understanding that the common understanding a common experience is that a conscious decision on your part or, or maybe just an offshoot of authentic uh, storytelling uh i don't think it was a conscious decision on my part i just thought it was a fun story and i wanted to tell it and um I think what I wanted to do was I don't I I knew I never really wanted to talk about I never really wanted to talk about difference in culture or difference in race because it was just something that wasn't that interesting to me and I also had seen a lot of really good comedians talking about that. What I wanted to do was uh, if I was talking about me being Pakistani or being from Pakistan, uh, is still uh, talk about very personal experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really have an agenda beyond that um but i think maybe you're right that it does sort of have the nice side effect of humanizing a part of the world that people aren't really too familiar with i mean the only time you see pakistan in the news is if something bad happens right um i don't that wasn't ever the intention but maybe that is something that happens but i just wanted to sort of tell these stories that uh were my stories and tell them in the way i wanted to tell them uh which is a very personal sort of um perspective you know i mean everybody has the experience of hiding porn from their parents but maybe not everyone has the experience of having to take a vcr apart because the electricity goes out because <laughs> you live in you know a developing country right no and that that's, a, that's definitely a unique a unique spin on it are you are you surprised by what kinds of things people actually comprehend and and maybe ask you about about pakistan and, and maybe what because I think on some level, for me even, uh, having grown up here, I was a little, you know, disarmed by by the fact that you were able to tell these stories. Because our my maybe my narrow-minded view of that part of the world is, well, I mean, I think you kind of, you broadened it just by talking about these things. Oh, uh, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what, what you realize is, you know, Pakistan, for the most part, is a very... Um, uh, you know, like sex is something that we don't really talk about. We're very, what's the word? I can't believe I can't think of the word. Um, I can't think of the word. But, you know, you sort of, uh, um, uh, oh, repressed, very repressed society in many ways. But, you know, sex is literally 
the most important things that humans do to keep the species going. So you're sort of fighting this urge that is the exact urge that has led to our survival, you know, and to, to sort of try and repress that is something that's very unnatural. Mm-hmm. So I think it sort of comes out in these weird little ways, you know, it sort of comes out with you getting porn when you're way too young and watching it and then feeling horrible about it, but it's, it's sort of undeniable. So I wanted to tell that story because to me, you know, when I think about religion and what the purpose of religion is and what the purpose of Islam was, or at least what, at least the kind of Islam that I was taught, to me that's one of the things that I think about a lot is uh, how a lot of what I was taught Islam was sort of runs contrary to who we are as human beings or people, um, you know, and I think you have to acknowledge these things about yourself. Yeah, on your special, on on the special, you actually talk about the particular kind of porn. Well, you know, that's not exactly true. You talk about watching a porn and then seeing a commercial for a particularly odd type of porn. Um, I don't know how to, do you want to talk about that for a second? (laughs) I I want you to explain it. Uh, do you want me to do for a porn where, you know, people like defecate on each other? That's so, right. <laughs> but, uh, I think, but you know, for me that was, uh, now I'm like, well, do whatever you want to do. But at the time it, it was so crazy to me that I was already doing something that was so outside what I thought good behavior was, you know, I truly believed that watching porn was bad and that it was sending me to hell. Yeah. But then the idea of, you know, sending me to hell versus this feeling that I have, this urge that I have that now I understand to be very natural. But at that point, I thought there was something wrong with me for feeling the way I was feeling. Yeah. And then to see something like that, to see sort of sex taken from, you know, because we were taught sex was something that you just do for procreation. It's not something that you do because you want to do it. You do it just to make more Muslims. And then to see (laughs) a form where... You're like, I don't think that's leading to more Muslims. I don't think, I really hope nobody's getting pregnant there right now. <laughs> uh, but just to, to see that, uh, ultimately, now when I look back on it, it was profound, one, because it was so shocking, but also because you, it was, in a way, you know, people doing what they wanted to do uh, and sort of discovering things about themselves and being very obviously unabashed about it. Uh, yeah, something beautiful about it now. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. It's good that you can see the the beauty in defecating on other people. That's good. That's uh, not not in the act itself, but in the idea of the act. Sure. Sure. If that's what they want to do. Go and do it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're right. You know, let let people should just do whatever they like. You know, we were talking earlier about sort of uh, adaptations. Uh, particularly, I, I was talking about sort of Indian or Pakistani film adaptations of. American storylines, were there Pakistani porns? I didn't see any, but I'm sure they were there. I'm sure they were there. Uh, But, I mean, it's a very dangerous, you know, adultery in our uh, country was punishable by death. I mean, if you think of, you know, separation of church and state is such an important, like, part of what America is, Mm -hmm. but... Over there, there's no such distinction. I mean, we have Sharia law, which is law that is straight from the Quran. So I, I never saw it. It wasn't really ever around. Plus, honestly, I wanted to see, you know, I wanted to see girls I couldn't see just walking around. I guess. You were, you were, and I were they. What they were primarily white women, or 
Yeah, what I thought was primarily white women. Yeah, and and was that that must have had some. I don't want to get too personal, but did that have some impact on your relationship with sex and 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 women in general? To see, I mean, did you have a perception of white women because of this? I assume you must have. Yeah, I mean, you you know, I, I think that's sort of true. Uh, or, or in most other sort of eastern parts of the world, as you think of like white American women as being more promiscuous. I mean, we watched Baywatch too, you know. So oh, okay. So you sort of think like, oh, look at all, all these things these girls are doing. They're horrible. And I always sort of judged them and thought what they were doing was really bad. But then obviously I was also watching it, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And in Pakistan, there is a really, really sort of, I think it's because of the British Raj, I think it's sort of a vestige of that, is that um, white, fair skin is considered more attractive, even among, like, Pakistanis. So mm-hmm. a fair skin Pakistani is more attractive. We have this cream that's called, you guys probably have it in India, fair and lovely, which actually, like, whitens the skin. Just just to be That's clear, like very... when you say you guys probably have it in India, I'm not calling you from India. I haven't been to India in a long time. I mean, I'm familiar right. with it. So just, just to be clear. Uh, right, right. Well, when you visited, do you remember seeing it? Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> not, no, I don't remember seeing seeing that necessarily, no. I was mostly watching bootlegged American films. Yeah, yeah. How long were we there for? Like six weeks. Oh, I was a I was, long time. Yeah, we were in like Bombay or Mumbai, as it is uh, once again known, and we were in New Delhi, and we were in Jaipur and Agra. Like we just went traveling around India. Did you stay with family? I bet you guys were like the celebrities of the family. <laughs> well, I remember I wore a, a, a sweatshirt that had um, a, a cartoon image of the Joker from Batman. You know, like the Joker was on it. Mm-hmm. And when I walked through the streets of Delhi, all the kids were wearing like exactly the same kind of like kurta pajama outfit like during the day and they were all like staring at me and pointing at me and laughing at me so when you say celebrity it was more like i don't know i always felt more like a pariah or something and that's maybe why you haven't gone back huh? i think so and i it's why i burned my joker shirt yeah i haven't gone back to <laughs> i want to go back at some point I, do you you say you haven't been since 1998 do you actually have a desire to go back because people always say you should go back and i'm like yeah but you know it's it's a difficult place to go, I find, for myself. Like, I don't have a... I want to go, but I don't have a strong urge to go. Uh, I do want to go back, uh, but I sort of am a little scared because I had this idea of Pakistan in my head, and at, at this point, 15 years old or whatever. Um, I do want to go, but I'm a little scared. Um, one, Emily, my wife, is from North Carolina. She's never been, so I definitely want to take her there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, but I'm a little, you know, it's the, the negative parts of Pakistan, like I said, Pakistan's in a, this is not, nothing against the people, but just, you know, it's a very corrupt, poor place. You always read about bad things going on over there. And I wonder if going back is just going to, if I'll just focus on that, you know? Sure. So, um, so, so it's tough. Maybe I do need, I do need to go back to sort of figure out in my head, you know, my relationship with that place it is home i mean it's where i'm from it's a big part of who i am but i'm also a little scared because i'm afraid it'll just confirm for me some of the um concerns i have yeah no i i feel the same way and i i I, you know maybe maybe you and i should just we'll go together i'll bring my wife michelle you bring emily and we'll just show them i i feel like we're gonna i'm gonna land with michelle and i'm just gonna say see and then she'll be like you're you were totally 
everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You put on a Joker shirt. I'll put on a Batman shirt <laughs> and we'll see. Well, you know, it's probably a lot more westernized now than even uh, 89. Well, I was at on 97. So it's, you know, I remember how much it changed when we got MTV over there and that wasn't, it wasn't legal. Like you could get a dish and point in a certain direction. You could get MTV and just having that really changed the culture and because of the internet and stuff. I bet it's a lot more westernized now. Yeah. My sister's been back many times since we went uh, as a family and she says, yeah, you won't believe it. Like she says the streets are, it, it's remarkable actually. And I mean, she doesn't say it in a necessarily a good way. And I'm not saying that I, I mean, on some level, I'm comfortable at my where I live, and the idea of that country turning a little bit more into this place is kind of both interesting and troubling to me. I don't know if you feel that way about about Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of inevitable when people have the internet and access to other countries. I think we're sort of heading to this homogenized version of the world, you know, where as as communication becomes easier, people sort of adopt parts of other cultures that they like. And that's good in a way because that's sort of their decision and they can do whatever they want and ultimately leads to maybe freer societies. But it's also kind of sad in that the, the very specifics of uh, other cultures are changing, you know, yeah. that if you go back now, you wouldn't see as many kids wearing Kurta pajama. And it's, it's kind of a shame. I mean, I know Pakistani parents here whose kids don't speak so uh, it, it's sort of sad that the culture is sort of becoming homogenized. Yeah, and I think that's happening like in, in lots of different ways. Like I, my generation of friends, we don't know how to fix things. You know, we can't make a like a bookshelf. Like my dad used to just make, and he still does. He'll just make stuff. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how to do that. And I don't know why I don't know how to do. That. I don't know why he knows how to do it. And I, I just feel yeah, like no, it's weird. Yeah, I'm I'm really good at video games, so I sort of. <laughs> <laughs> My dad can fix a car. I can, I can, you know, beat Zelda. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly where we're at right now. I, you know, I want to ask you a little bit more about Betamil because when I, when I listen to it, I, I hear this unique voice and this unique point of view. But I imagine when you listen back, you must hear like the work that went into it, uh, perhaps the external mm -hmm. external forces that influenced it. Can you talk about your your relationship with this special at this point and? And maybe what, uh, what where it leaves you as a comedian? Uh, well, it is you know for a it's been ten years I've been doing stand up. It's my first thing, so I obviously overthought it. And about five years ago, uh, my stand up completely changed. What I sort of my performance on stage and the kind of things I talked about like completely changed. Hmm. So really, even though it's 10 years, this is stuff from the last um, 
three, four years, and mostly the, the longer stories are just stuff from the past year uh, because I think it's sort of, you know, you're most connected to the stuff you write most recently, even if it's about stuff that happened to you a long time ago. So, you know, the happy birthday story and the closing story about the guy in the attic, those are all pretty recent stories. Um, so I overthought it, and I, what am I going to call it? What am I going to wear? When should I get a haircut? Like, all that kind of stuff, you know? So I did it, and I was very happy with how it went, and then I sort of was editing it for, you know, a kind of a long time. And I don't like watching myself, mm-hmm. but it was really, really difficult uh, to sort of go through that. Although if you listen to it, then there's really no editing gone into it. But I've seen that special so many times, and I'd toured and done those jokes, uh, those stories to sort of sharpen them right before the specials. But a couple months leading up to it, I was touring a lot, and I don't usually like touring. I don't like going to like a shitty hotel in the middle of fucking nowhere, you know. Yeah. Um, so by the time I recorded it, I was uh, I was happy after I did it to not do those stories again. And I honestly kind of took a break from stand-up for, for a while after that. And, I, uh, and after the editing and stuff, I didn't watch it. But then more recently, I, I watched it again. And I, and I really liked it. And I was like, oh, I really, really like these stories. And I still have a connection to them. They're not really... The danger of taking something that's part of your life and making it into a story or a bit is that sometimes you can take its power away from it. So it just becomes this thing you do rather than this thing that you were, you know? Sure. Um, and that's part of the process of writing a story is you take something that... Take the thing that really happened and in a way commodify it, you know, all my stories are true. There's no lies in it, but you add, like, you know, the funny jokes aside, aside, all that stuff. And in a way, that sort of takes the, you know, in a way, that's, that takes the story away from you. Um, but watching it again, I really, really liked some of those stories, and I liked all the work that went into it. And, you know, some of the stories took me months to sort of sharpen and hone. So I'm very proud of it. Um, but I'm also now ready to sort of move on to the next thing, you know. You mentioned that uh, five years ago something happened and something, you know, transformative kind of happened to your comedy. Can you elaborate upon that? Well, for the first five years, I was really sort of, you know, I was very nervous going on stage. So I sort of did just these one-liners, these stories that were not stories. I just did jokes. They were very short. I think the longest one I had was two minutes, whereas now I think the the happy birthday stories at like six or it had like seven or eight minutes, and so was the last story that I think it's at six, six or seven minutes. Um, so, and two minutes was like maybe I had one joke, but all my jokes were really short, very observational. And I think as I became more comfortable on stage, I think the hardest thing for me to do on stage, at least, was being myself hmm. and talking about myself because it's not. You know, if they don't like you, then it's a rejection of you rather than a rejection of an act, you know. So, right, right. Um, yeah. So, I think what I, five years ago is when I moved to New York. Um, and, you know, I'd been doing it in Chicago for so long, I'd gotten really comfortable. And I knew all the rooms and I knew everybody. But moving to New York with my now wife and seeing what people were doing there. Uh, really, really sort of... Well, what I did was I wrote this one-man show right before I moved to New York. That was a very personal one-man show. And actually, the VCR story is a um, sort of... 
the very, very early version of that was in that one-man show. Okay. And so then talking about myself on stage, I realized, like, oh, this is what I should be doing because anybody can have a weird observation about, you know, something external. But these stories are things that have only ever happened to me. And if I can sort of convey these stories, then I have a, you know, I have a market corner on this stuff, you know. Right. So, right. um. Huh. Yeah, so it completely changed my stand-up about a few years ago. I realized, like, oh, I just want to tell these stories and uh, be more personal and stuff. And then that kept evolving until the, 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 the current version of the VCR story. I would say the three big pieces, which is the happy birthday story, the guy in the attic, and the, the VCR story uh, are the things that are most indicative of what my stand-up is like. If you watch in the beginning, this I do some shorter jokes in the special, but later this big long stories like I won't, the next special I want to do I wanted to just have those long stories in it yeah and I mean what you're talking about I think is a, a mark a market shift between b- between sort of observational um, distant kind of comedy rather where the comedian is kind of at arm's length from the material to we've seen a real shift I think some say for better or for worse where comedians are more you know talking about themselves and their lives and and they're considered more heroic than your observational co- uh, comic. Yeah, I think sort of it's like you said, it's good and bad. It's good because you have people like Louis C.K. and Mark Maron who are really really good at it doing it. Then it's bad because people think you could just be shocking on stage or say something awful you did, and that's what stand-up comedy is. Yeah. I, I I think that sort of being more personal on stage is sort of the evolution of stand-up, and I think for me. It's better than the observational stuff, but it does mean that there's a lot of comedians right now who are who are who sort of are trying to ape that style and, uh, you know, like a bad observational comedy is not as bad as bad like someone trying to be vulnerable on stage and just talking horrible stuff about themselves. Right, right, because it's just uncomfortable and there's no, there's, I mean, the part of that the, there's a weird thing because both styles are ultimately things that people should be able to relate to. And on one hand, it's like, yeah, isn't that ridiculous? Like the observational thing is like, that's true. That's so, f-. but the personal stuff is like, that's happened to me. So there's this weird internalization of both kinds of approaches, but one can be totally off-putting if it's not done right. Yeah, because I think there's a big emotional component to it. Um, you know, and so I think what you do is when you have someone like Louis Sika talking on stage about, you know, how much he hates his kids, Clearly, that's not true, and he clearly loves his kids, but every now and then he's really angry at them, and that seems like a very relatable thing. I don't have any kids, but it it seems like a very relatable emotion to have, but if it's not done right, then you just, you know, this guy just looks like an asshole. Yeah, yeah. I, I Within your work, I, I, I hear certain influences, and, you know, and I don't know if this uh, is off-putting in any way, but, like, you mentioned Louis. I mean, I hear a little Mike Lee in black. I hear a little Eugene Merman. Are these the kinds of people that sort of hit you when you kind of hit hit your, sorry, when you shifted a little bit? Well, Eugene is different in that Eugene sort of does this really surreal, weird stuff that I really like, but I've never really did. You know, obviously, everyone you watch kind of, everyone you talk to in your real life or in comedy finds their way into you, into who you are, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, when I toured with Eugene a lot when I first moved to New York, and he sort of has this... Um, you know, he sort of figured out how to be really funny while being really obscure and vague and bizarre. Um, and I think that's a very different 
you know, overall, the way he does stand up and the way I do stand up is very, very different. But obviously there's overlap because I really like him and he likes me. Um, so I think there's a shared sensibility there. Yeah, uh, with yeah. Michael Ian Black, I, I, I wrote for him on Michael Michael Issues, and he is maybe the funniest guy I know uh, on camera. I mean, America still doesn't know just how funny he is. If you watch Burning Love, this web series, um, do you know what Burning Love is? I love Burning Love. Like, I, 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 I adore Burning Love, I think. And he's, so just so people understand, he's kind of, this whole show is this like faux dating show. It's a rip on all these sort of reality shows that with like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and all these things. And it's done so sharply and so smartly. And Michael is like the affable host kind of guy, Michael Ian Black. And he's, it's amazing. Yeah. Have you seen all three seasons of it? Um, I can't tell you if I've seen all three, actually. I know I've seen the last two. I don't know that I saw the first yeah. one. Yeah. It's kind of confusing because he, I, some of it's false, right? Some of like the, am I wrong, wrong about this? Oh, yeah. Like some of it's like last time on Burning Love, but then I don't think that happened, did it? No, no, no. They apparently, <laughs> I think from what I understand, the conceit is that there have been seasons between each of the seasons and these guys referenced those seasons, but those were not seasons that were ever made. But, uh, so, you know, we shot that over, even though, you know, I'm not in it a lot, a lot, but um, I was there all the time because even if it's not your scene, everybody's kind of hanging out. So I was there, I think, for like three weeks almost every day, about 12 hours a day. So I got to sort of see Michael Ian Black work every day, be on camera. And a lot of it made, of it, made it in, but a lot of it didn't. And just seeing how funny he was, I mean, he was... You would come up with stuff right there that was like that you couldn't, you know, that would take you like days to write. <laughs> he's just so sharp and funny, and he's funnier now than he's ever been. He really is. And I, like I said, I America still doesn't know how funny that guy is. Even on Michael and Michael, we would write these jokes, and then he would improv, and it was way better than anything we'd written. And we could see him just come up with it right there. He's He's, he's a genius. No, his books are, are actually genius. The two books that I've read of his are genius. Uh, the comedy records, I mean, unbelievable. I, I can't get over how great the comedy records are. He is. And I don't want to turn this into a thing about Michael Ian Black, because we should be focused on you. But that guy <laughs> is remarkable. That guy is great. Yeah, he is really remarkable. And I, I, I can hear then, obviously, you learn things just by hanging out with him in some way. Yeah, and you know, you don't... you. you it's not like something you you try and decide to do, but um, you know, if people hear it, I guess it's in there. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I know, a lot of comedians just don't watch comedy now because they're afraid they'll start internalizing other comedians. You know, like I know every comedian I know who's really good. You know, I started in Chicago with a lot of people who are now like all pretty successful. Like a lot of us are doing pretty well. Um, and all those guys have their own voice now, but when they started, they all sounded like someone else, you know? Yeah, and I think that's just a that's just a matter of when you start, that's what happens. You're, you're starting because you saw something happen, and it influenced you and inspired you to do it, and eventually you come to a point where you've taken, you have internalized a bunch of things, but it's going to come out authentically as yourself at some point. I mean, do you feel like that's happened on beta mail, or do you feel like there's more to come? Or rather, I know well, you... Th- I mean, uh, sorry, do you think there's something different to come? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you're always changing who you... You know, I'm, I always try and keep changing 
as a comedian, I think it's sort of unavoidable as you change as a person, the stuff you're writing about changes. You know, I don't have kids, but once I write, once I have kids, that, that might be something that makes its way in, you know? So mm. it's not something I'm actively thinking of. I remember actively thinking at one point I did a set in Chicago where I mentioned how much I like Star Trek. And I was like, hey, my, my persona did not allow for that. And I remember that was the first moment where I was like, I should not have, a, I should be able to talk about whatever I want on stage. I can't have a limiting persona like that. So right now it doesn't feel limiting to me. Yeah. But maybe it is, you know, and uh, as you change as a person, what you talk about on stage will change too. So, you know, if you look at Louis C.K., he's still evolving. He's the best stand-up comedian in the world, I would say, and the kind of stuff he's talking about now is different from the stuff he was talking about just a couple of years ago. Yeah, for sure. And And that's... I mean, he's someone who's also, you kind of hinted at this, and I'm not sure if this is true, but he's also made it a point to jettison what he's done and look forward. Is that something that you're likely to do with the material on beta mail, or is it, <clears throat> is it too soon for you to kind of hone a whole new thing? Or does that even excite you, the idea, the prospect? Because to me, the people who do it, like I think Chris Rock does it as well, where they'll just end the act. You know, they'll tour and tour and tour, record the special, done. And then they start, it makes them start over again. Is that something that appeals to you or is that kind of daunting? Uh, it's daunting, but it also appeals to me. I don't think, uh, I think I'm done with all the stuff on beta mail, you know, like I don't think I'll be doing any of that stuff on the road. Um, and I think that's what's exciting is forcing yourself to write new stuff. And the new stuff will hopefully be, you know, more of who you are. And I see comedians have sort of gotten stagnant and they get stagnant when they stop writing. Yeah. I think there's nothing better you can do as a comedian than figure out and really perfect uh, an hour in an act and really, really get it perfect and then record it and get rid of it and start over. I think that really, really sort of, uh, as you force yourself to write more and more, more of you makes it onto the page and onto the stage. So I, I really think that's what I want to do. It's been sort of hard for me because I've been busy with other stuff. Uh, so I haven't, I'm not as far along in my next hour as I would like to be. But yeah, the next time I, t I tour, I'm not going to be doing anything from beta mail. Okay, that's cool. That's I, I really feel like that's another striking aspect of this era of comedy where I don't know, I don't know if it's Louis' influence necessarily. And I, I think, I, I mean, there's certain comedians like pillars of comedy that have done this in 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 history, you know, but it, it's it's pretty exciting as a fan of comedy to to know that that mindset is out there that people are willing to just you know start over every time. Yeah, and in the UK, this has been the norm forever. You know, I mean, uh, Edinburgh, the, there's a festival, uh, there's a comedy festival in Edinburgh every year that actually just started. It happened in August. I went there last year to do my hour. You know, um, you do a show every night and. These comedians write a completely new hour every year, and their whole year is sort of built around Edinburgh. So they'll, uh, you know, they'll probably take a month off in September, then October start writing, touring, writing, touring. Then there's a bunch of festivals, small festivals leading up to it. And then by the time you get to August, you have a whole new hour. You do that hour. A lot of them don't even record it. They just do it at that festival for a month, and then they get rid of it. So this is something that, you know, is the norm in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's weird. It, it feels, it seems almost, particularly those talking about personal stuff, I imagine it's sort of therapeutic to just like, you know, like divulge all of this stuff about yourself and then, all right, I, I did that and then I move on and I it, to try to discover, rediscover yourself each time almost, I imagine. That sounds hokey, but I bet it's yeah. true. 
uh, I think it is true for the most part, but I also see a lot of people like really struggling to like come up with new premises. So now there's like, it's become where it's, this show is about trying to write shows and, you know, just like crazy sort of uh, framing devices. Like, I'm from the future and uh, this is what stand-up comedy is like. And while you're there, he gets attacked. So I think okay. I think there is something good about that, but it can also, like, if you have writer's block, I think that can be very obvious. There's also the thing of, you know, there are certain things that I think for me that are just mine and don't really belong on stage. And I think in Edinburgh... And the danger with a lot of this sort of being really vulnerable on stage is that that stuff that's just yours, you know, gets commodified sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I we talked earlier about uh, the meltdown with uh, Jonah and Kumail, so I think we got that covered. Uh, is there anything else that's coming up that you want to talk about, uh, Kumail, in terms of your work or the indoor kids or anything like that? Uh, well, I will be doing this HBO show uh, starting in October with Mike Judge, um, you know, the creator of Doof and Butthead and Office Space and King of the Hill and uh, Idiocracy. I mean, he's a fucking... I don't know if I can swear. I'm sorry. Yeah, you can swear. It's a podcast. It's the Wild West. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> uh, he's... Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to start. We did the pilot for HBO a few months ago, and uh, I... I think we start shooting that in October, so I'm really, really excited about that. And then I'm going to go to the next season of Portlandia in a couple of weeks. And, and uh, sorry, did you say what the Mike Judge show is called? Well, right now it's called Silicon Valley, but I think it's going to change. So we don't know what the new name is yet. Oh, okay, okay. And Portlandia, you're just you're coming back as various recurring characters? Is that the idea? Yeah, this is the first year I'll go sort of, I'm going to go right for a week. Um, and then I'm going to act for a week and sort of the plan was that I was going to join Portlandia full-time as a writer and as an actress, I would have been in every episode and I would have been, you know, one of the main writers of the show. But then this HBO thing happened and I love Portlandia and Fred and Carrier. Amazing. Yeah. But, you know, what my judges, I, I mean, I really couldn't pass up the chance to work with him. No, he's a genius. But so sort of had, yeah, he's a, he's a, genius and he's been forever i remember being in pakistan watching beavis and butthead and going oh somewhere in the world they're making this you know <laughs> so it made the world seem bigger you know yeah uh, and he's like the nicest guy he could not be more humble and cool um so um i sort of decided to uh give up a little bit of my involvement port and i need to go do this yeah but i think i'll be in more than I know I'm in at least two episodes in the upcoming season of Portland. Yeah, maybe more. Okay, that's cool. And and are there any other plans? You were just in Montreal. There's a Just for Laughs festival happening in Toronto this fall, this September. Are, are there any? I don't know. Are there any plans for you to to do that or or come back to Canada at any time soon? Um, not right now. I I don't think I'm actually touring because you know I do Portlandia most mm. of August and then and then. Um, we sort of go on vacation in September for a little bit, and then October until next year is uh, the Mike Judge thing, and then probably next year until March is Meltdown. So I think I'll tour after. I'm not going to be able to tour until April or something, but, yeah, I want to come out there again. Okay, cool. Well, we'd, we'd be pleased to have you. I assume your vacation uh, will be to Pakistan. 
<laughs> no, we're going to Europe. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, we're not. We just want to relax. We we don't want to have any epiphanies about ourselves. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably for the best. Uh, once again, Kumail Nanjani's new CD and DVD is called Beta Male. It's available now. You can learn more about it at ComedyCentral.com, and you can follow his Twitter feed at Kumail N. That's K-U-M-A-I-L-N. Uh, Kumail, it was a great pleasure to speak with you, and I thank you for your time. Thank you for talking to me. And uh, before we go, I think do you think it's okay if we just go to something from Beta Mail? We should maybe let's let's play something from it. We talked about it enough, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Here we go. This is something from my Comedy uh, Central uh, special, Beta Mail. But do you know what it is? What <laughs> I was hoping you would. Oh, you I would... don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't want you you want to pick something? Uh, let's play an excerpt from this long story I have about uh, thinking there's an intruder in the attic. I'll tell you. Okay, so I don't know why I like horror movies and stuff, because in real life I'm a coward. Like, I'm not good in real life scary situations. I'll give you an example. A few years ago I lived in Chicago. And, uh, yeah, it is pretty fancy. I like the guy that wooed was like, woo! Like, you had that, what am I doing? Sorry, you did it. There's no strings going up to the ceiling. We're like, whoa, come on! What the fuck? Making me look like an asshole. I look up, there's Julie Andrews. That is a Sound of Music reference. What I love is that that will always still only be the second douchiest reference of the night. I lived, <laughs> I lived in Chicago, and I had three roommates, me, a guy, two girls. This is about scary shit. And we, had the, we rented the whole house. So we have, the whole, we have the basement, the regular floor, the ground floor, and then the attic. And the attic is empty. It's unfinished. Nobody's up there. Nobody ever goes up there. It's empty, you know? One of my roommates, Katie, does not have a job. Whenever we come home from work, Katie's like, uh, whenever you guys leave the house... I can hear someone walking around our attic. Yeah. And we go, uh, shut the fuck up, get a job. <laughs> Lies don't pay the rent. <laughs> For weeks, she says this, we dismiss her. One day I'm at home, and Katie comes into my room, and she's like, hey, come here right now, come into my room. I go into Katie's room, and I hear someone walking around my attic. <laughs> Like deliberate human scary hobo footsteps. And I immediately start freaking out. Like immediately at a hundred, you know? Just freaking out. And we start doing that yelling, whispering thing, you know? Like, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And then I'm like, if there is somebody up there, he's gonna know we're in the house, but we're whispering, he's gonna know we're onto him. He's gonna come down and kill us all. So we decide to have like parallel conversations, like a fake decoy conversation, just to throw them off, you know? Like we're like, what are we gonna do? We should bake a cake. I am freaking out right now. I like chocolate. So if there is somebody there, all he hears is silence broken by chocolate cake. Just like panicked cries of chocolate cake. What could be more suspicious? He's gonna murder all of us. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm freaking out. I'm, I don't know what to do. I'm a beta male. We're all betas. This is a house of betas, you know? So we have one friend. He's an alpha male. His name's Joey. He lives in Alaska. He hunts 
bear, and then he makes jerky out of it. Alpha as fuck. So we call Joey, and Joey goes, uh, uh, go up there and check. Yeah, which hadn't even occurred to us. Our entire strategy was to talk about fake cake until the lease ran out. And then just move, you know? Never speak of this again. Somebody has to go up there and check. And we nominate me, because fuck everything at this point. So I have to go up and check, and I'm so scared. And the only way up the attic, so the roof is like, like 12 feet high. The only way up to the attic, there's a little like door. We need a step ladder to get up there. House of Betas, we don't have a step ladder. So I go into my room and I push a chest of drawers from my room under there. Like I'm gonna climb over it and get up there. And then my roommates give me a flashlight. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this if there is somebody there? So then they also hand me a butcher knife. Because if somebody's there, I'm just going to murder them. It's gonna be like, chocolate cake! Stab, 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 slit. Guys, there was somebody there, but I've killed him. I'm gonna go take a shower and pack my bags. Give me 30 minutes before you call the police. And then I spend the rest of my life riding the rails and using payphones. Whenever I try and sleep, I see the light leave a hobo's face, you know? You don't forget that. Somebody goes living the dead by your hand. And then I'm like, if there is somebody up there, he's up there, he's just hanging out, regular floor for him. And then a thing opens and just my head pops up. Very vulnerable position for me. He's just going to whack them all me on the head with a baseball bat. And I'm gonna die. This is how I die. So my roommates are like, we have to find you a helmet. House of Vedas, we don't have a helmet. So I go into the kitchen and I get a cooking pot and I put that on my head. None of this is lies. I put a fucking cooking pot on my head, but it comes down to here, so I can't see anything. So then I get a colander instead and I put that on my head. Which if somebody baseball bats me on the head with a colander, I'm still going to die. My roommates just have to buy a new colander. Or feel really horrible anytime they make pasta, you know? Isn't this the colander that Kumail died in? So it's a very strange sentence to say out loud. Isn't this the colander that Kumail died in? I swear right before I get up there, Katie's friends from out of town show up. And I'm there climbing over a chest of drawers, flashlight in one hand, butcher knife in the other, colander on my head. I look like somebody whose parents couldn't afford a Halloween costume. You're a spaghetti head. He also has a butcher knife. Because fuck everything. So I get up there and I am so scared, you guys. It's like, I can't see anything, it's super dark. You know, the flashlight is weak. I'm looking at the world through holes big enough to let water through, but not spaghetti. Like. Very small. I get up there, shaking. I don't see anything, I don't see anyone. 
But there's one area around the corner, like behind the corner like that, that I can't see from where I'm standing. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so I work up my courage. I grip the knife tighter. I put the colander deeper into my head. <laughs> I walk over and I see nothing. Never found anything. But right after that, the noises stopped. What the fuck? And I know it's super disappointing that there was nothing there, but if there was somebody there, that would have been the first thing I would have mentioned when I came out. I would have been like, fuck Ugly Duckling, three years ago I murdered a hobo. Thank you so much, guys. That's my time. You guys have been so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.